Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another incredible episode, just like always. And today, I think, I always say, this may be the day that we set a new record for Cognitively Questions. And I'm pretty sure we did set the record for Cognitively Questions, because we have so many that pretty much every topic today is going to be based off a Cognitively Question. I had, a, I had two topics that I was going to discuss, but then... Sure enough, there are cognitively questions about them, so they're actually going to be cognitively questions as well. And then we're going to have many more that I was not preparing to have long uh, discourse on, but we will answer those at the end of the show. But the first thing we have is not yet a cognitively question. I'm sure somebody would have asked this maybe after the time I recorded or before, but if you have asked this question, it's fine. You can still ask other questions for next week. But I'm going to discuss the Argentinian, or Argentinian presidential, or Argentine. Argentine is actually a better way. Argentine presidential election that occurred yesterday. Javier Millet, a libertarian guy, won a lot of right-wing Twitter celebrating it. Some are not that enthused because he's uh, he's got some goofy... Um, ideas. I mean, Millet wants to convert to Judaism. Um, he's very pro-Israel. So is all the right in Latin America, because Bolsonaro was as well. And so, but most of, most of right-wing Twitter and right-wing spheres are very excited about this. So it's just, this is going to be a brief topic, because I am not an Argentin, Argentina expert. Um, but I do know this, that Argentina's problems are very different from ours. The political situation in South America is very different from what it is in America and Europe. And it's probably worth having a little bit of different standard of what they want to do. Like Mille's main mission is not immigration. This is very different from European populist parties. Even calling him a populist would be a little bit <laughs> weird because... Populism in Latin America means something specific. It's generally left-wing populist. Uh, you know, Argentina has its own tradition of the Peronist, and Peronists have sometimes been seen as right-wing. They're not quite as traditionally a part of the left as, say, Maduro and Hugo Chavez are in Venezuela, but they would be a part of that Latin American populist tradition, and it's generally seen on the left. So calling somebody who wants to cut government and embrace the free market and saying that this guy is a populist is a little weird <laughs> for Latin American politics because they would all deny he is a populist because there are populists already in, in Venezuela or not in Venezuela, in Argentina, and they are opposed to Mille. So they would be, it would be very different from the populism of Europe and America, which is generally assigned to or it's generally about dealing with immigration. Immigration, they do have an immigration problem, which is from their neighboring countries, mostly NDOs, people who pretty much have no mixture at all with Europeans, amestizos. Uh, Argentina is still primarily in a predominantly European country. Um, most of its immigrants are Italians, Spaniards, number of Germans there too. So European, it's mostly European immigrants, still majority there, but they are getting more of the indigenous population, so to speak, coming into their frontiers. And Millet does actually, some. there's been debate over what his immigration policy is. I mean, once again, Argentina's immigration situation is different from what it is in America and Europe. 
But he is talking about saying we're going to cut the welfare state so no longer any of these NDOs are coming into our country. So it is uh, about he is an immigration restrictionist of a sort is that he wants to cut off the main temptation for immigrants to come to come to his country. So for that, it's interesting. But I, I think it's not as important as we may think because and this is generally true with a lot of these elections is that what mostly matters is. America and a few countries in Europe, like I think elections in UK matter, elections in Germany definitely matter, elections in France matter. And then there's a, a scale from there. It's like Italy matters more than Slovakia, but it doesn't matter as much as France. And it's even the same with Spain because Spain is also having its uprising and, and, you know, riots over there. But Spain would probably be even less important than Italy but on the but close enough, but not as it's not as important as what happens in France, Germany, UK, and here in America. And so it's you know it's interesting that they're rising up and you know fighting for or the right wingers are rising up against uh, the left over the assassination attempt against one of their leaders. So that's good, but it's ultimately you know we can't really look to for to Spain to save us. Hungary is interesting just because Orban is such a hated figure among the globalists that they really want to remove him and they can't remove him. They've tried in 2018, they couldn't remove him and tried in 2022, they couldn't remove him. And he's willing to break out of what the American empire wants. You know, he works with China and Russia. He's very strong against immigration. He is an interesting figure. I mean, even though Hungary is not that important of a country. Polish elections were uh, semi-important just because Poland is like on the frontier uh, between the, you could say the West or NATO, or we'll say NATO against Russia. And it's the most important country in Eastern Europe. And it is gaining more importance in Europe itself. Um, so those elections matter. But it, it, some people on our side just soy jack a little bit too much these elections and in the periphery i would say argentina matters more than say like the election in bulgaria or something which some people will be like wow populist wins and and there was a populist who won in slovakia but at the end of the day it is slovakia so it's uh, not too nothing to get too excited about but in Latin America, it's like a very different situation from what it is in Europe. I think in Europe, you can maintain the highest standard for what you're expecting from right-wingers because it's all about immigration. It's all about the relationship with Russia and America. And so what these leaders are saying and what they're doing, you can maintain a very high standard for saying, well, this person should be uh, generate suspicion because they fail on this one measure. Look at Maloney. You know, she's slavish toward... America and yet and she's letting all these migrants come so she's been a, uh, a traitor she's betrayed the cause and so you can maintain that standard but with what they're doing in Latin America it's a, a very different scenario I mean mainly we, what we want in Latin America for these countries is for these leaders to be pro-Trump which Millet is and this is not as much of an issue in Argentina but it is in other Latin American countries is to ensure that they don't have such a shithole that it's driving migrants up to America, which I think is a reason to like uh, Bukele and El Salvador. We can't really replicate that stuff here. And there are some goofy aspects about him, but he is creating a stable country where all their people are not trying to flee to America like it is in Nicaragua and Venezuela. 
And he is also pro-Trump. So that's like the real standards like in Latin America. Are they pro-Trump? Are they not? Are they creating a shithole country? And those are really the basic standards. And even though I don't think Millet is... Uh, little people are a little getting a little too excited about him. It appears that he may be able to. He definitely accomplished the pro-Trump line, which is good to have world leaders who are pro-Trump. There are not that many. You know, you just have like Orban, uh, this guy. You did have Bolsonaro, but he lost. Um, Bukele. Uh, I don't know who else. I don't know if Maloney would because she's just so uh, subservient to American interests. She's like, no, I support Biden. <laughs> but, um so I don't know who else would be a Putin, maybe, but I don't know if Putin should say he wants Trump to win. Uh, so there are a few world leaders who um, who would like that. MBS, actually, in Saudi Arabia would absolutely prefer Trump as well. So you do have these uh, leaders if they're pro-Trump. And it's, so it's nice to have that. And, uh, you know, Argentina has a ton of issues right now. And maybe Millet should solve that. But what they're dealing with in Argentina is different from what we're dealing with America. It's not quite the sign that, you know, this is a big world changing event. It is Latin America at the end of the day. And it's it's on the periphery of where our concerns are. So it's just a reasonable thing. But I'm not um, I'm not that worked up about it, like are angry about it. I think it's a, it is interesting that it's happening. And I do think that he was representing the whites of Argentina. You can say that's wrong or not, but those are the people who were primarily voting for him. It was not the Indios from Paraguay and elsewhere uh, moving into the country who were voting for him. So uh, for that alone, he's an interesting candidate. Uh, he is really funny with his antics in a very Trumpian manner. He's more of a clown, uh, goofball or clownish aspect to him, a court jester aspect to him than Trump is. Just with his aunties like dancing on TV, I've, there's like clips of him grinding on like t on like these Latina TV hosts and stuff. So uh, he'll definitely provide some amusing stories for that. But that's all my opinion on Melee. I would just say it's not as important as maybe some people are going out for it as. I mean, some people. There was a tweet from Blake Master saying. This is like Brexit predicting Trump would win in 2016. It's like Brexit was a lot more important than the Argentinian uh, presidential election. If you have connections to Argentina, obviously it would be more important to you, but most Americans don't. Uh, so it's not Brexit was a very important event uh, when it happened. So I would not compare it to that. It's just uh, another Latin American country that's elected a right wing government or a center right government. And it may improve um, its situation from being a shithole and from a, a, a basket case. So that's it on me. I didn't want to have too long of thoughts on that, but that's my thoughts on it in case anybody was asking. But we're going to go into what I was planning for the main topic. And this, of course, was a cognitive question. Now, I actually have to remind you is like I always have my pitch ready, but we are going to be changing the highly respected Substacks URL soon. I am debating between using my name as the URL versus uh, something involving highly respected. Unfortunately, highlyrespected.com is taken and it is an urban streetwear company, <laughs> which uh, is, uh, I don't know if that's Greerhead Pledge compliant. Uh, it's definitely not, but that is what has highlyrespected.com. There are a few other ways of formulating it that we can have for the Substack, but we are gonna do that because nobody uses it, is using .substack anymore. 
our .substack.com anymore, and it can improve our ability to share the links on Twitter, where and X, it's actually called X now, of course, but I'm, I'm still going to call it Twitter. And so that will help get the Greer Head message out there. So we have a, so as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Convalete option at highlyrespected.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So that is the Cov, so that's highly respected Substack. So this question comes from K Max, and it's about the Elon Musk tweets. And this is going to be a good segue into what I want to talk about, about social media and the concern about this, because it's not just Elon Musk. I also want to talk about the Osama bin Laden craze on TikTok and Republicans obsession with TikTok. So, but we'll go on Elon Musk first. And K Max asked, Elon Musk tweeted some very interesting things this past week. How far can Elon take this and where does this Overton window go? Musk tweeted that the very group crying about the new immigrants' views of Israel were the very same people who brought them all into America in the first place. Your view on Elon Musk tweets, especially about the ADL. No, I think it was awesome. It's uh, the one thing I talked about this in my IQ supplement last week, but <laughs> the things that got me canceled for writing in Radix, damn, like eight, eight, eight or nine years ago. That's how long ago it was. I stopped writing for Radix or running Radix in June of 2015. And these things that got me in trouble, like I'm sure most of the listeners know my backstory, is like got me canceled by Conservative Inc. was for saying things that now Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens, and Matt Walsh are all saying. Not just about anti-white racism, about, you know, I was specifically gotten in trouble for, I wrote this article uh, because even back then there were articles like anti-Semitism is rising in Europe. And I basically said all the anti-Semitism in Europe is coming from Muslims, which all these Jewish groups supported and wanted. And they were like, and of course that was included in the hit piece on me and saying how I'm anti-Semitic for pointing this out. And now you have Ben Shapiro even agree with this. And you have Elon Musk because Elon Musk retired to a tweet essentially saying this is that all these groups have been encouraging anti-white racism and encouraging these groups to come here that are now very anti-Israel and we shouldn't care about this. And Elon Musk said that's totally true. And then Ben Shapiro, even though he is uh, getting very worked up about Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson, he said it's 100% true. It's a agree. I mean, he obviously gives the qualifier that's left-wing Jewish groups. But still, that is something that was one of my worst offenses in the Atlantic hit piece on me five years ago, that's how long ago it was, and resulted in my banishment and banishment of any other people who said this stuff. Because if you said this stuff in 2016, 2017, 2018, you would have been cut out. They're like, you're a racist, you're a Nazi, you're a white nationalist, boom, get out of here. And now you're seeing all these conservatives echo these opinions and the world's richest person. And so what Elon was saying was awesome uh, in that front. He sort of backed down. He said, well, it's like just the ADL and these left-wing groups and all their stuff. I mean, obviously, he's a billionaire running a, you know, a huge tech platform. So, of course, he's going to make some concessions. And he also had a tweet saying white should be proud of their race, which another thing that would have gotten you canceled uh, pre-2021 in conservatism and still has me and many others blacklisted from 
uh, respectable conservative institutions. It's now Elon Musk saying, I 100% agree with this. You should be proud of your race and call out Jewish groups for, for pushing anti-white racism. <laughs> and, and so and it's totally what all the alt-right was saying in 2016. A lot of ways it is mainstream. And the most evident place of this was, and I, I talked about this in the IQ segment, but I just have to bring it up again, is the Elon, or not the Elon Musk, but the Tucker Carlson, a Candace Owens interview. It literally sounded like you were listening to a uh, alt-right podcast from 2017, 2016, 2017. Uh, they're talking, he specifically talked about white genocide. He's talking about how these groups are pushing it. They want to replace the white people uh, through mass immigration and propaganda. And it's just like, wow, this is amazing. This is like two of the most influential conservative conservative commentators. And this is what they're talking about. And got even more hyped up to add another thing to Candace Owens before I talk more about Elon Musk, is that she had Norman Finkelstein on her podcast, which is a very a bizarre moment because I've known about Norman Finkelstein for years. I read the Holocaust industry and other stuff. And he is one of the most detested figures among Zionists. Like that is somebody you could not reference with any positivity being in conservative ink for when I was working there. I remember hearing like Norman Finkelstein is like one of the most evil people, same similar category to Max Blumenthal, but a, even a higher level of, of contempt and, and hostility towards, and to have one of the biggest conservative influencers to have this guy on, who's extremely anti-Israel, very pro-Palestine, um, it's very much he wrote a whole entire book uh, criticizing the you know, Holocaust industry and making fun of Ellie Weasel and other figures like that. And to have him on a major conservative program to talk about Israel, Palestine is just a very jarring event that this would even occur. So there's very interesting things happening in conservative commentary, which it does show that a lot of these dissident right ideas, which were on the fringes, on the margins, are now very mainstream and are very much taking over conservative ink and what conservative media talks about and is allowed to talk about. And it's like just a, a completely different situation from what it was just in like 2019 or 2020. And if you had said any of this stuff, like great replacement, anti-white racism, calling out Jewish groups, <laughs> hosting Norman Finkelstein on your podcast, you would have been a purge. But they can no longer purge people because of the power of these individuals to be bigger than their brand. Because a thing about uh, Candace Owens and a difference between her and Tucker Carlson is Tucker Carlson was on Fox News. And Fox News, no matter how big and important Tucker is, Fox News as a brand is more important than its personalities. The personalities depend on our people tune into Fox News because of that brand. That's what draws people in. And Tucker was very successful in, in maintaining that brand and promoting that brand. But those viewers will just watch whatever, most of them will just watch whatever's at eight. It's a different scenario with Daily Wire. Daily Wire depends on its personalities. Its personalities in large part are bigger than the brand. If the Daily Wire lost Bid Shapiro, Candace Owens, and Matt Walsh and try to replace it with just random people, they would lose most of their audience. They can't replace them. And that's the same. That's why there's a different reaction Daily Wire is having towards Candace Owens versus Tucker Carlson and Fox News because they know they can't replace Candace Owens. Candace Owens as an individual is bigger than the brand and her personality goes, there's going to be a tremendous backlash against Daily Wire and they're going to lose that audience that was tuning in for Candace Owens. So that is a different situation. And that's, a, that's why we're able to get 
these ideas out there that were once uh, verboten, once forbidden. And now we're able to have these biggest people because they're no longer dependent on these institutions as much. These institutions don't have as much sway anymore. You know, they can just, you know, Nash Review can condemn you. But if you've still got a massive Twitter page, huge fan audience on YouTube, you got a massive Substack, I guess, like me, uh, I would say, you know, you got your cognitive lead out there. They can't cancel you. They can't silence you. They can't purge you. And you, through your writings, your videos, and your podcast, you can get a bigger audience than even National Review. And that creates more opportunities for us to get our ideas out there and not have to worry about what Conservative Inc. thinks about this. So that's a very positive thing. And, you know, obviously Conservative Inc. Can, <laughs> cannot silence Elon Musk or bemoan Elon Musk. And the fact that Ben Shapiro came to his, re- or came to his aid and defended his actions shows that conservatives... Even though they'll condemn figures like Candace Owens or Tucker Carlson, those they view them as on an equal to them or you know in the similar sphere as them or even beneath them with uh, lower on the pecking order in conservatism, they'll condemn them. But when there's somebody higher, which that person they depend on because they know no conservative really wants to publicly condemn Elon Musk because he's helping them out through uh, Twitter uh, promotion. He, they want to have more investment from him. He is just a person that he can tweet something and, you know, make news. They do not want to be on the bad side of Elon. So they will go out and, you know, pragmatically defend him for saying things that they would condemn somebody, even just like Tucker or Candace or even lower down the ranking order for saying but they won't do that for elon they will try to defend him to curry favor from him because he's the world's wealthiest person and he has this tremendous power and influence and by defending him they think that elon will then support their initiatives and projects so i think with uh with ben shapiro i think there was a utilitarian reason for this i don't think he was wanted to generally uh defend attacking jewish groups but he knew that it was beneficial for him to do so based on must power and wealth so it's definitely moving the overton window on a lot of issues i think you know i talked about this in 2021 when critical race theory was first coming up and saying anti-white racism is now a mainstream issue it's even more of a mainstream issue now that no conservatives are ever going to deny that anti-white racism is not a problem polls show that average republicans view it as a major problem and as an even a bigger problem than other forms of racism uh, especially and it's and that's true anti-white discrimination is actually a very apparent form of discrimination unlike other alleged forms of discrimination that no longer exist so that's true i think it's also bringing in a lot of information about uh it's definitely moving the overton window on the rights view of the adl adl if you went back to say 2019 2018 still had respect and deference from conservatives it really no longer does have that. It's on the same level as the SPLC when it comes to the right, which is a positive development. Uh, and it's also been a positive development on the right's move towards hostility towards the uh, SPLC. When I first started in conservatism, SPLC still had respect and deference from a lot of conservatives, unfortunately. Uh, over time, it is now seen as just like a total left-wing trash rag. It's not even worth... Uh, acknowledging and the SPLC has lost a lot of influence and respectability over the years and authority it really just doesn't have quite the same power that it did in the mid 2010s 
I would say just the pre-2020 era. You know, even companies don't really listen to, to the SBLC. The, the big difference between the SBLC and the ADL is that corporate America and the government pays it a lot more attention to what the ADL says in the SBLC. FBI still relies on the SBLC to monitor extremists and others. But outside of that, you know, they're... They really don't, they don't have the ability to get people fired anymore like they used to. Even the Antifa journalists don't really have that ability anymore. I mean, just look at how HuffPost wrote a hit piece on Richard Hanania, you know, detailing his past racist writings, and they couldn't even get a major book publisher to cancel him. Huge difference from that time, uh, from the time period of, you know, the Trump era. The first the first term Trump era. We got a second term Trump era. We'll see what that's like. Um, so that's a that's one huge difference. Uh, but with the ADL, if they complain about something, people still have to. Powerful people still pay attention a lot more than they do with the SBLC. Even though conservatives now view the ADL in the same way that they view the SBLC, both you know trash organizations they shouldn't even listen to people outside of conservatives are still listening to the ADO. So it still has a tremendous amount of power, but it is moving the Overton window on greater criticism of it and potentially undermining its ability to influence people. So that's a positive thing. So those are moving. It's all very positive direction. I don't just view these as throwaway tweets. I do think it's, it's introducing new ideas to people, to conservatives and to followers of Elon Musk, and it's making them more critical of aspects surrounding the ADL, mass immigration, and anti-white racism. So those are all positive things. The one thing that I'm a bit skeptical on that it's moving the Overton window is conservatives' view of Israel. Now, a lot of conservative commentators, also a huge change from years past, are very critical of Israel. You look down the line, Tim Cass, Elon Musk. Well, Elon Musk is saying things about Israel, but it's more uh, Jewish power, Jewish groups than Israel. He's still very pro-Israel. He's like, all these Jews are funding anti-white racism. By the way, I'm an extremely strong supporter of Israel. <laughs> I guess that's his line he wants to do. Um, but Tucker is being very critical of Israel. Uh, <laughs> Candace Owens is having Norman Finkelstein on, so obviously very critical of Israel. Lauren Chen's being critical of Israel. Matt Walsh is being critical of Israel. So there's a lot of big figures that are being critical of Israel. But you know who's not being critical of Israel? The media formats that the boomers and Gen Xers are primarily listening to. And that's talk radio and Fox News. And talk radio and Fox News are basically pledge allegiance to Israel every day. And so they're very fervently and fanatically is pro-Israel. And most of the base still listens to that more than they do to Lauren Chen, to Tucker on, on X, and other formats. It's the younger people who are listening to these people. So there could indicate a generational change on how the right views Israel. But for the time being, due to the older crowd still listening to talk radio and Fox News and traditional print publications that are still very fervently pro-Israel, they're not moving at all. And also it's a lot of this hostility towards the pro Palestinian protesters, which they really just hate them as. And it's not so much as, as I said in a previous podcast, it's not a sign of Islamophobia. It's more leftophobia. And they view these people as disgusting leftists and will be hostile and opposed to whatever they're supporting. 
And that is continuing to shore up support for Israel on the American right. But there could be changes afoot with uh, Zoomers and maybe millennials and that they are listening to more online programming from both the mainstream like Lauren Chen to the not so mainstream and the the band formats of people like Nick Fuentes. And so that could create a generational change that could uh, arise. I mean, because there's already a general generational change in attitudes towards Israel um, and, the, and the general population. Because younger people don't support Israel at all. Like Gen Z, like the 18 to 30 demographic, uh, there's majority support for Palestine. Very little support for Israel, which is making Zionists and neocons very upset. But that's just the way it is. I, I don't think that's... Uh, a sign of how right-wing they are. It's just that it's seen as part of the general left-wing mentality or viewpoint for young people that they would also oppose Israel. Now, obviously, right-wing young right-wingers who are opposed or hostile or critical of Israel have different reasons for it, or maybe similar reasons, but they are very right-wing on all the other issues while these people, while the leftists are very left-wing on everything else. Uh, but there is that just that difference uh, that is happening with among younger generations itself. And so that generation gap will probably be reflected in the right. So that's uh, but that will that will have to change over time. I don't think within this decade you're going to see much. You you still only have one Republican willing to be pro or anti-Israel publicly. And that's Thomas Massey. Maybe Rand Paul, but Rand Paul hasn't been saying anything. So it's just Thomas Massey. Maybe. And so that's uh, so there's this huge debate within conservatism over this, yet it's only reflected in the Republican Party by one person. And maybe by 2028, there are more. Maybe in the 2030s, there are more. But so far, for the time being, there probably are not going to be more. And for the 2024 election, Republicans are going to be unfortunately, fanatically pro-Israel. So that's my view on Musk. But to take it on to a different topic, which um, isn't uh, doesn't pertain to any IQ or Cod Vliet questions. I always want to keep calling the IQ supplement questions. No, they're Cod Vliet questions. But actually, I need to address one more Cod Vliet question because it deals with this topic. So I might as well say this on four. Uh, another question. These are both from Mystery. Mystery had one that's a vague one. He just wants to know. It was also about Musk and what do I make of these uh, right-wing tech billionaire phenomenon and how Musk is. It's just that I, I'll probably keep this brief because I talked about this a little bit before. But I think one thing that tech billionaires are more willing to get into esoteric aspects of the right or the dissident right more than traditional wealthy people like business owners and stuff because they don't have the traditional hobbies of the traditionally wealthy. You know, if you go to a guy who owns, you know, a supermarket store or is a wealthy hedge fund guy, what do they do in their spare time? They watch sports. They focus on their alma mater. They play golf. They, and like golf probably takes up a large amount of their free time and hobbies and what they focus on. And they stick to more traditional, classic conservative ideas about we just want low taxes. We want tough on crime policies. Probably not that good on immigration, but they really don't like uh, their areas turning uh, non-white. But it's all very traditional. And what are they focusing on? It's golf, sports, alma mater, you know, et cetera. Tech billionaires do not have 
the same interests. And a lot of them are more nerdy. And a lot of them are more seeking a purpose in life or, or answers to questions in life. Because a lot more of them are experimenting with psychedelic drugs. Hedge fund guys are not experimenting with, uh, with psychedelic drugs. Or maybe they are now, but not traditionally so. Uh, they are wanting to, and they're more willing to go down rabbit holes, especially with the tech world, is that they see crazy things going on tech and they're like, I wonder what is going on here. And they'll turn to tech people who are probably more right wing than what these uh, traditional business guys would do. These traditional business guys would just turn on CNBC or maybe Fox Business. And that's where, and that's where their answers would get. And it'd be not as esoteric, not as dissident. Well, these guys will just go to, well, they would go to previously go to blogs or go to the you know YouTube videos and find out things, and that's more willing for them to go down further down rabbit holes and get red pilled on issues that the traditional elite would not. And I think that's what's going on with Elon Musk is that he's just you know scrolling through Twitter and he's seeing all these ideas and he's like you know it seems. And maybe he's seeing the world around him. You know, he had one of his sons who decided to transition. And so he's looking to answers to these problems. And he's turning to alternative forms of way of finding those answers versus more traditional business elites. And he just doesn't have the same interests. You know, it's not like his, you know, free time is spent playing golf. It's spent scrolling Twitter. And thus, he's going to be more introduced to those ideas. So that's I think that's a similar case for a lot of other right wing tech billionaires, is that they're more willing to embrace crazy ideas and support them than and crazy ideas, not meaning in a negative way, but ideas that the media would deem as crazy than others. So that would be my answer to that. And the second question from mystery, he had it's actually about Candace Owens. He asked, do I think if Candace Owens is sincere? Because she's changed a lot over her time. You know, she originally started off as a leftist, you know, trying to, I think, dox people or something. And then she moved to a total typical black conservative voice, uh, but thinking she's a grifter. But no, I don't think she's a grifter at all. I think she's generally sincere enough or sincere enough compared to all their commentators. Because she takes very controversial issues that are very risky to do, and she goes, runs with it. And from what I'm told by people who have interacted with her and stuff, she's generally into these ideas. And there are there is a lot of risk to these ideas. I really don't like it when people are saying, oh, you identify this controversial issue. You must be a grifter. Like I heard, I saw a tweet today, someone calling Norm Finkelstein a grifter. I'm like, Dude, this guy had his career ruined, his academic career ruined, and was hounded by the ADL and all these Jewish groups for his own opinions. And he likely lost a lot of money due to this. He's the opposite of a grifter as he took a lot of risks for his political views. And it's the same. And I, they always accuse people who take uh, controversial opinions as being a grifter. It's like, no, you're more willing, you're more willing to take... Uh, you put yourself at more risk by adopting these views than not. And I think that's the same with Candace Owens because what Candace Owens is doing, she is jeopardizing her job at the Daily Wire by taking these stands. And it is tarnishing her reputation on conservative thinking, the conservative establishment, by taking these stands. And so I think she is genu genuine and sincere. And I, I think, though, Best thing about Candace is that when in 2020, when all of conservatism and people were sharing this article like that was from 2020 attacking her for this. 
And what did she do when George Floyd died? She did a viral video pointing out how he's a drug addict and a criminal. And likely this the story that's being presented to us by the mainstream media is wrong. And that was a very brave thing to do at that time. Because nobody in the mainstream sphere wanted to do this. Tucker Carlson was sort of getting in that area. Not as forceful. But very few even in conservatism. And this is at the time when we had elected officials like... Now, House Speaker Mike Johnson talked about systemic racism and how we need radical change. We had Greg Abbott who saw George Floyd death and said it was the worst thing he'd ever seen. And on and on. And there is an article written in Red, in Red State by another black conservative who is actually a grifter who attacked Candace Owens for not understanding the systemic racism and police oppression towards blacks. Uh, and and DeSantoids were sharing this article to say somebody called out her grift a long time ago. It's like her grift is uh, pointing out the bullshit and lies around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Uh, no, she did. And she did that at a time when it was very tough to do and there was a lot of risk to do it. And she did it. And it was a convincing video as persuasive. So I think she is sincere enough. And I because and she could do a totally different act, still make a lot of money still, you know, be popular and stuff and not have to risk her career at Daily Wire and not have to risk her reputation in conservative She could just be like these other black conservatives that are just like, oh, blacks are ready to vote Republican. And actually, we need to take George Floyd seriously. So we end racism. What does she do? No, she goes into much more controversial territory that actually poses risk to her career and employment. And I think that demonstrates uh, sincerity to her. People can change their opinions, especially women. <laughs> and uh, I think this is a case with Candace Owens. So now to a topic that was not an IQ supplement or not a Connolly question. It is about the nature of tech censorship and people wanting more things done about tech. Because Elon Musk, you know, dropping truth bombs um, has come at the price of advertisers boycott. There's a major advertiser boycott going on now over his statements and also the fact that left-wing groups have determined that they their ads are appearing in the in the mentions of haters and racists and bigots. So they're all pulling ads and now they're trying to have economic pressure on Twitter to change and to censor more. And Elon Musk's solution to this was to ban the word decolonization and from the river to the sea, which... It seemed to have pleased the ADL, which is really funny that it did, that they would take this uh, as sufficient enough. But he uh, he did that. It is funny because all the statements that they're mad about are stuff that I would say is right-wing anti-Semitism. And instead, he just directs it towards what is left-wing anti-Semitism of sort. Because very few right-wingers are talking about decolonization. And even when people you're very anti-Israel, say, from the river to the sea, they're generally just being ironic. They don't really care that much about Palestinians. Um, outside of the context of opposing Israel. So this is only stuff that would affect leftists, not, not right-wingers. It's not uh, the type of things that are that he would be focusing on if he felt that right-wing anti-Semites or white nationalists or whatever, or neo-Nazis are the primary problem on Twitter. Um, but he did that. But at the same time, I still don't like that standard because it's, you know, I, I firmly oppose decolonization to that rhetoric, but I oppose that being censored 
Twitter because what if we just want to talk about it? And obviously, there's not even it's a very clear precedent for them just banning all their terms and stuff that we want to talk about. Maybe he gets pressure and then saying you need a ban, talk a great replacement. Maybe you need to do this. Maybe you need to do that. I think Elon would be more opposed to doing that because of the people he's listening to and the right wing content that he's consuming. But there is a chance that they could just push him to do that. And he shouldn't be making these changes at all uh, to satisfy. I think the advertiser thing, you know, that some people are complaining about like, well, it's an outrage that he's no longer to allow ads and in, in offensive accounts. But it's like, you know, these companies are wanting to pick their advertiser. And if it's like some, you know, <laughs> uh, Pepe Nazi Griper 1488, like, sharing some insane thing and they see like an IBM ad in it you know maybe they don't want that and so maybe they can have the right to choose that and as long as those people are allowed to speak freely and have a voice on Twitter it's just the price you have to pay um, I guess um, you know uh, Derla Vanger Graper 1488 is not going to get any advertising bucks but you know he as long as he's able to speak Freely, I think it's it's fine. That's just the the trade off you have to do. It's we don't live in a perfect world where <laughs> I don't know if it would be a perfect world if Thurlovanger Griper is becoming a billionaire through <laughs> through uh, Twitter, but maybe uh, some type of world would be that um, uh, would be a different world than ours. But it's just that's just the way things are going to work, and you do have to make some trade offs so we have the ability to continue to speak freely on Twitter. So I'm fine with that, but I don't like the restricting words or phrases or anything of that because that clearly creates a precedent for us, for them to target what we're talking about and the phrases and words and language that we're using. And obviously we're we're opposed to that because I've always said is that in this war, in the Israel war, the three things we have to keep focus on is no war, no immigration, no censorship. And unfortunately, there's starting to be a lot of censorship over this war, and I don't like it wherever it's coming from whether it's Ron DeSantis cracking down on campus speech or Elon Musk shutting down a discussion on Twitter or any social media platform so uh, I don't really like that but it's it's not as bad as you might imagine because it's not really going to affect right-wingers that much but it could affect right-wingers if he adds more language that could get you banned or get you censored but the real censorship focus isn't so much on Twitter it's on TikTok which that especially happened last week when there was a bunch of viral videos of people reading Osama bin Laden's letter to America explaining why he engaged in the 9-11 attacks and why they were uh, uh, supporting terrorism against the United States. And there were several people supporting it and endorsing the letter. And it was getting millions of views. Uh, and obviously there was, uh, there was some concern about this because TikTok is seen as a youthful platform that's used by teenagers and people in their early twenties. And that now all these people who wouldn't even been alive when 9-11 happened are now viewing Osama bin Laden with a positive view, uh, really, uh, agitated and aggravated the powers that be and there were TikTok was then pressured to start censoring any videos that read off the OBL letter. And even The Guardian, which had a text of it, took it down, which is just stupid. It's like, you can find it elsewhere. Why is The Guardian taking this down? And I guess they just assumed that some Zoomers are so stupid that they, when they see the first search result, that they won't look elsewhere. Maybe that's the case, but you can easily find it elsewhere. And also, you can just use Web Archive to find it on The Guardian anyway. 
just how I actually read it. It's like I, I had never read the full length of it before, and then I decided to read it, but I used Web Archive on Guardian to do it. And it, so it's uh, they're very concerned about that, which is some revealing facts about this, is that Osama bin Laden, even though he's been dead for 12 years, and the event that all Americans hate him for is over 20 years old, he still exists as a very present evil or demon in American thinking, or at least among the older generations. It's very different from somebody endorsing, say, Stalin or the communists in a way that that would definitely, no one would give a shit about. No one give a shit about that. I mean, it's like endorsing those villains. It's just, you know, you might as well just endorse like Attila the Hun or somebody. You know, nobody's going to get care that much about it if you do it. And if there's like viral pro-Stalin content, only like Heritage Foundation would be complaining about that. And there probably is out there. I know there's a ton of pro-communist uh, viral content that goes that goes there on TikTok and not as much concern. Osama bin Laden, despite the passage of time, still remains as a very evil figure that you're not supposed to even, in an edgy way, supposed to mainstream or something. You know, he's not... Even Compare this to somebody like Ted Kaczynski, who didn't kill nearly as nearly as many people as Osama bin Laden and was not a, the main enemy of America for a long time. People can, you know, if there are viral clips of people reading from the Unabomber Manifesto and saying this is... This is true. And I think there's already been cases like this, especially on Twitter. Wouldn't generate that much outrage. Passage of time has passed. Like People just don't really care about that. And so, and that's the fact for many, many other figures as well. As if there's an ability to have this like, oh, I want to look edgy but safe at the, at the time. And I don't want to be censored. And there's several other figures that you can do this for. Like even Pol Pot or something like that. But with... Oh, Bin Laden, he still ranks the, up there with someone like Hitler. If there were viral TikToks talking about people reading from Mein Kampf, it was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, there would be a ton of outrage over that. And the same way that there were people reading from Osama Bin Laden's letter. So he still ranks as that figure. Um, I don't know how long it's going to last because it's, some, it's that intense of seeing him as a demonic figure or a devil is something that is not apparent among the younger generations. They didn't grow up around 9-11. You know, they were still kids, probably even when Bin Laden was killed. You know, a lot of these teenagers, uh, they would have been alive when Bin Laden was killed, but they might not have been old enough to be aware of the significance of it or that he was killed, in fact. And so they don't really have that 9-11 memory and the 2000s memory of terrorism and, and Al-Qaeda and stuff that has made him into a... Hitler-like figure. But we're still insisting on that standard that the, for older generations that remember 9-11, that the Zoomers have that same viewpoint as well. But they're probably not. Over probably in the next 20 years, when we still have social media, people will then be making cutesy, edgy posts about him in the same way that people do about Stalin, Pol Pot, uh, Che Guevara, maybe, and other, and other figures like that. So you'll, and Mao, and so he'll just be there and people will just roll their eyes. Is like, wow, typical leftist idiot celebrating Osama Bin Laden. But it's going to have to take a much longer time to a lot of the generations that remember vividly 9-11 and it greatly impacted them are no longer with us. And it becomes a sign that Bin Laden is now just a harmless figure. But that aside, that's, a, that's probably a conversation for another day on Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and what that 
and how that dwells in American memory. We've got so many other topics that I cannot dwell on that much longer. And the main thing I want to talk about is the conservative idea that TikTok is driving Zoomers woke are making them woke and it's an evil subversive force in American life, which is now gaining more credence over the fact that, as I was seeing earlier in the podcast, that all these Zoomers are very anti-Israel and pro-Palestine. And Republicans are saying it's all TikTok and it's the Chi-Coms. The Chi-Coms are making our youth anti-American and anti and anti-Israel. And this is why we need to censor TikTok. And there are so many social ills that are placed on TikTok that it just cannot be... Uh, really justified because they'll say oh mental illness and depression and suicidal tendencies is all due to tiktok and the fact that these kids support palestine is all because of tiktok and like their left-wing views and them wanting to trans themselves etc 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 it's all because of tiktok and it's like do you see the rest of social media do you see what's on instagram do you see what's on x do you see what's on facebook do you see what's on youtube do you see what's on uh, i don't think they use tumblr anymore but do you see what's on t- on Snapchat? What well, they're seeing getting on Snapchat as well, and there's all uh, t- countless numbers of other of other platforms like this, and even the TikTok alternatives are just the same type of content they see on TikTok. It's not the Chicoms driving wokeness. The Chinese are not trying to game the algorithm like, oh, we want Americans to young Americans to think about. Suicide. Oh, we say this. We want young American girls to have body dysmorphia because they're fat asses. We we change the algorithm. You know, they think that that's like the funniest thing. It's like when that like it'll be like Heritage Foundation type people. It's like all oh, these young girls are feeling bad about their bodies because the chai comms are engineering the algorithm to make them feel fat. And it's like <laughs> one. <laughs> I think uh, seeing obesity rates among young girls, I think body dysmorphia is, you know, if they're so worried about their bodies, maybe they should start working out. And that's for all people. But it's like if they're so depressed about it, they're not doing anything about it. I think it's just the nature of the Internet and social media in general. And it's not like the chai comms are engineering this to make young women uh, feel bad because the mental illness problem among young women is like the worst thing we imagine while we ignore the mental illness problems of young men it's like it doesn't matter to us but it's like young girls are feeling bad about themselves on social media and we've got to do something about it and then conservatives will exploit that and say it's the chai comms doing that they're making our young girls feel fat and not like what's happening the chai the chinese intelligence are not gaming the algorithm so you see more you know some girl twerking her ass all the time and it's like half the stuff it's like it's like like Girls shaking their ass or just completely idiotic nonsense. And you can find this on other platforms too. It's not just TikTok. And there's also the concerns over gaining data and stuff. It's, you know, all these other tech companies and even non-tech companies are handing over their data to China as well. So, and also handing over their data to our government, which may even be worse in some cases. So that's... I always find the TikTok stuff a nonsense when people are complaining about it. It is a bad platform, but not because of the Chicoms. I think it is making, it is uh, reducing our attention spans. I think most of the content on there is completely frivolous and stupid. You could maybe say that about all tech platforms. I mean, maybe uh, Twitter makes people more depressed by seeing what the world is going on around them and and other things. But, you know, TikTok, I don't think is one of the great problems facing America. Uh, I would 
would not I would not say I would not agree with that opinion at all. But conservatives are united in believing that for whatever reason. Some of the some of the opposition towards TikTok is just this China hawkery, and it gives them a way to complain about social issues that are not are social ills that are not caused by social media, but it gives them a convenient target to blame that all on. And the other is that there are a lot of tech companies that are financing that are rivals to TikTok that are financing the efforts against TikTok. And so that's it. And TikTok has a very bad lobbying effort too compared to other tech firms. It's a lot because Chinese people, a lot of Chinese leaders and people involved in their business world com- don't understand American politics at all, which is fortunate for us because if they understood American politics, they would actually be that uh, demonic force and evil force that that conservatives claim that they are. They would actually help to subvert and overthrow our, our, our way of life. But they have, they, thankfully, they have not figured, they don't understand American politics at all from what I've been told by people who have interacted with them. And even just what you can say about that is like when George Floyd died, China put out an All Lives Matter ad, you know, completely not understanding BLM and what the leftist agitators uh, want. And so that's just, they just don't understand this stuff. And that's why TikTok becomes this convenient target is that they're, you know, they're not very powerful in Capitol Hill. They have a China association. The defense industry really hates anything associated with China. So they're able to target them, attack them uh, in a way that they probably wouldn't with Facebook or in, uh, in other platforms and YouTube. So while I think uh, America free of TikTok would be good, we would just have another platform that is possibly even worse because there is some right wing content that's able to go viral on TikTok. I mean, Look, Andrew Tate, a lot of people don't like Andrew Tate, but he is uh, right-wing content that is reaching, or vaguely right-wing content that is reaching millions and millions of young people in a way that others aren't. And he was able to go viral through TikTok. He wouldn't have been able to do that through other platforms. So there is, and there's other examples of that. So it's able to give some kids an alternative to what they, you know, mainstream media would tell them and what their other formats would. But at the end of the day, I think uh, there's some other issues with it. And if it got banned, we would just have something worse. But that alternative would not allow something like Andrew Tate or something off the, the plantation to go viral and to reach a major audience on there. So I, I am pretty much opposed to most of the TikTok censorship stuff. And claiming that this will solve all these issues, you know, it'll de-wokeify American youth and it will make them not depressed anymore. It's just so stupid that you really have to be getting paid to, to believe that. If you really want to figure out why American youth are so woke, it's like, look at look internally. It's in the schools. It's in the media they watch, the movies, the TV, the music. Uh, the, general, the general atmosphere and culture that they are a part of is making them woke. It's not TikTok. It's not just this one platform. It's not like before TikTok... All these youth were extremely patriotic, pro-American, pro-conservative. No, there's been a left-wing push among Zoomers are showing a left-wing orientation for the youth for a long time, for years prior to even TikTok becoming popular. And a lot of it is driven by demographic change, which people don't want to address as much. And so TikTok just makes a more convenient target rather than the uncomfortable truths of why these youth are so woke, and it's much better to focus on the education problems and indoctrination and education than to blame TikTok. 
and and to look at the culture itself. It's just very myopic and and asinine to believe it's all TikTok's fault. And that's why I'm definitely I would say pro TikTok, but I'm anti uh, censorship of TikTok, even though I'm not on TikTok at all. But it, and it's also funny that like conservatives are like, how can we win over young people? It's like, let's ban their favorite tech platform. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, that's really going to help us with our, our demographics. It's funny with all these demographics that we need help winning over college educated whites, young people. We choose to do the opposite or embrace all these issues and double down on them. That's going to further alienate them. And then we're like, why are we losing these people? Must be Trump. And it's like Trump has nothing to do with that has very little to do with that. It's a lot of the stupid stuff like wanting to ban TikTok. And, you know, Democrats complain about, you know, they we Republicans mock Democrats for it. But guess what? Democrats are getting a ton of youth turnout and that's helping them win elections. That helped them win in 2022. And we're stuck here just complaining about it and like saying they, they supported the Chi-Coms. Well, you know, through using TikTok and other means like that, they were able to win an election and turn out the youth vote. And conservatives can just complaining about how they can't win over young people. And they're like, well, we need, I remember 10 years ago, I don't think they would use this anymore, but I remember 10 years ago, their grand plan to win over young people was to have more uh, politicians use office gifts. And I'm not kidding with you. Conservatives were arguing for this. Uh, today, I don't think they would use office gifts because that's very millennial core. I think they're aware Zoomers are not that into the office as millennials are. So, but that's like the ideas. It's like, well, how about we just uh, have a, a cool meme and then we'll do that and we'll win them over. It's likely not going to work in the way that they imagine, especially if they're banning their favorite tech platformer. So that is my views on that. So now I'm going to go on to more Cognitively questions from our valued Cognitively members. I'll go next to a New England refugee question. I usually wait for him to the, to the end, but I actually want to discuss this topic that he brings up. And he asks, he said, hey, Scott, please watch the clip above and riff on how embarrassing Senator Mark Wayne Mullen is. He tries to fight the union president, calls him racist, makes Bernie the voice and makes Bernie the voice of reason. What who does this appeal to? And then Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders was the chair of the committee when this happened. Uh, who does this appeal to? Unfortunately, it appealed to the entire conservative, every conservative on social media because they thought this was the most awesome thing to ever happen. And they're like saying, we need more duels and fights in Washington to end this scourge of backbiting and shit talking. And this is how men should do things. Uh, every conservative was soyjacking over this incident. But I, as I said in a tweet that was unpopular, I said it was an unpopular tweet, is that this is just embarrassing. First off, like Mullen was not going to actually fight this guy. He wasn't going to fight him. What is he going to do? Jump over the the panel and like fight him in the middle of the Senate chamber? No. He and he would likely get charged with assault. And it's it just looks stupid to us. It's like there's already a, you know Bernie Sanders was right. He's like, you know, American people already have a low view of Congress and we're just making it lower by this. So that's that. You know, if it was in another scenario, maybe they're at a bar or something, and it's like, you shit talk me, and you said you wanted to fight. Well, here's a place, and they exchange fisticuffs. Whatever. It's fine. I don't think it's the greatest thing ever. But it's, you know, it happens, it happens. At the end of the day, these are middle-aged men. They are leaders. They're supposed to act in a more res responsible, restrained manner at, at the positions they are in. And some people are saying, well, like, congressmen dueled in the past and stuff. It's like... Yeah, there were cases of like that. 
you know, people bring out the Preston Brooks case where he nearly beat Charles Sumner to death in the 1850s and other things, but we're no longer in that world. And it's not like you're going to win over a huge segment of the population is like this. This is the cultural revolution we need. We have middle-aged men fighting each other over over words. It's like one in in politics, you are insulting each other and saying things all the time. And if everyone just went around challenging each other in duels, we would. Well, some people may think this is a positive, but we would likely kill off our entire leadership if it happened. Everyone's like, you said I voted on this bill. I challenge you to a duel. And there were cases like this in American Republic early life is that, you know, in the War of 1812. And also, this is different from Europe and Europe, you know, it was only supposed to be around the aristocracy that they were challenging each other. And somebody was a social inferior. You weren't supposed to accept that challenge. It's supposed to be social equals primarily the aristocracy that was going and getting into these duels due to the democratic America, nature of America. Now everyone is engaging in duels. And in the War of 1812, we, you know, American performance was not very good uh, in a lot of the campaigns. Of course, we had some successful ones like Andrew Jackson and New Orleans at the end of the war or after the end of the war. And we also had some successful campaigns against the Indians. But we were having a lot of trouble. And some of the trouble was the fact that officers kept getting in duels and critical officers we needed were killing each other. There was one time that there was a, I, th- I believe it was a regiment or some large scale military formation was completely without a doctor because the doctor had died in a duel. And so they were eliminating the people they needed for leadership and stuff. And it was creating disorder and chaos and a lack of discipline because you know, an officer would give an order and then like, I don't, I object to this order. And then they would duel and then uh, they couldn't accomplish things. This is actually a big problem in the Confederate army is that they would, all these guys would challenge orders all the time. And like, this is an insult to my honor. I challenge you to a duel. And they would, and the South had a lot of trouble getting people to follow orders and stuff and to maintain discipline because everyone was wanting to challenge each other's honors. Like I find this an insult. Uh, One funny case of this is that uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest got into this uh, vicious brawl with a like a captain or, or a lower rank junior officer who came in and I think the officer shot him and then Bedford Forrest stabbed the guy and Forrest thought it was a mortal wound it was not but he had delivered a mortal wound to the other officer and then he chased him around a town that they were encamped in all over the place with all these soldiers seeing it and they're just seeing their leaders act like total buffoons you know, Forrest was an intimidating guy and able to have the loyalty of his men. But in other cases, you know, if you're just seeing these guys act in a way that you would hope privates didn't even act, you know, it does create um, uh, undermine authority and leadership. Didn't work. Fortunately, in Bedford Forrest's case, he had so much charisma and intimidating factor and a successful commander that it didn't do any harm. But at the end of the day, it's like, you, you don't want your generals, you know, you don't want your general trying to chase around a, a captain, trying to kill him for, uh, over an, a minor insult. And whenever people bring talk about how we need to bring back duels and these type of challenge fights, they imagine that this will end the scourge of shit talking, that no one will ever shit talk at each other again. There will never be any backbiting. When in fact, that's the complete opposite is that honor cultures are filled with shit talking. If you want to see an example, I know I don't really like saying that magic culture is honor culture, but there are similar aspects to it. Uh, you know, it is maybe not practiced by the um, uh, people with the best impulse control, but it is a sign of honor culture and reputation. And if you look at something like rap, you know, they're all celebrating exploits and stuff. And most of rap music is shit talking. They're shit talking the rivals. They're shit talking this 
a pussy who didn't challenge him to fight, who, you know, he robbed him and he showed him up. And it's all filled with diss tracks. And these are guys who will respond to disses with violence. That's how black culture works. And the idea that the threat of violence would encourage people to be respectful and polite to each other and to not shit talk is just not borne by evidence. I mean, there's always this case that the South, that they were always respectful and polite to each other. The very upper crust elite, that may have been true, but it wasn't quite that. I mean, the rest of the South was filled with shit talking and, and people taking insult. And also the type of insults that would drive people to violence is extremely minor things. Like this guy said, oh, he said, I'm uh, I'm not that great of a businessman. I'm going to shoot him dead. You know, is actually that they're easy to take to insult. And all these people are always shit-talking each other anyway. Because it's about, in an honor culture, you shit-talking somebody is a challenge. You're trying to have that bravado to say, I am brave enough to say this, and I don't. And the threat of violence is not going to make me afraid. I'm going to show I'm a real man. I'm going to show I have balls by saying this. And if you want to fight me, fight me. And it's about testing each other's manhood and reputation and honor in that. And then if they're able to overcome that violence or meet that violence, that shows them as more worthy of respect in it. And so you can just see this in rap music is that they're always shit talking each other. And then even despite the fact that the threat of violence is very real in black culture and that if you run your mouth, you could end up dead, yet they still do that. So I would not end the scourge of shit talking. And if we did have like duels and stuff, you know, we, we couldn't get anything done because people, you know, the nature of elite leadership, you are going to have these Machiavellian style politics and these backroom deals and backbiting and, and betrayals. It's not very good, but it, it happens. And if everyone's just like, you know, shooting each other over minor insults and stuff, you probably are not going to get a lot done because <laughs> everyone's just going to be killing each other off. And, and that's also the real thing about violence is that generally... In a culture where there's strict norms and, and codes where it says, like, you can't kill this person and stuff, it's like you just have a boxing match, it's rarely going to get to that level because if somebody beats another person up, they, in order to avenge their honor and to, you know, get back at that other person, they could resort to lethal violence. All this is just speculation is that we, a dueling culture would just be so out of, is so impossible in our thing. It's like, you know, it's like your cashier is going to challenge you to a duel because he didn't like the way you looked at him. And it's like, why would you accept the duel challenge of a cashier? But it, we do live in an egalitarian democratic society, so you would have to take the challenge of the, of the cashier. That's just like the type of stupidity it is. But a lot of this is just promoted by a lot of, I mean, Gen Xers going through some uh, midlife crisis as unfortunately... Uh, influences a lot of what right-wing thinking is. And a lot of these guys need to want to feel that they're more masculine and they're able to put up your dukes and, and do this stuff. And so the idea that they could just challenge people to duels to, you know, they could challenge their wife's divorce lawyer, ex-wife's divorce lawyer to a duel makes them, you know, happy and was what they want. But they're not likely, it's not likely to lead to a better scenario. And so everyone was like complaining about it. It's like, oh, how many fist fights have you been? How many violence have you been? I have been in fist fights. I've been in violence. You do that when you're young and, and, and reckless. But when you're older and wiser, you generally try to avoid that because it looks embarrassing to all people around. And 
Uh, Mark Wayne Mullen is a trained fighter, but at the end of the day, it's just gonna, you just this looks embarrassing. It looks like a Jerry Springer episode. Nobody was watching Jerry Springer episodes where they were challenging each other to duels over over um, contested paternity, and then being like, "This is an honorable society. This is what we want." You do not want your Senate chamber to turn into the uh, Jerry Springer episode. So it is a problem with the insane clown party that they would have this done. And if, and if congressmen were able to challenge each other to duels, like Jamal Bowman would be, be beating the shit out of a ton of congressmen. Like there was a time where him and Thomas Massey got an argument. And if, and if Jamal Bowman is allowed to lay hands on him, he would absolutely beat the shit out of Thomas Massey. I don't think that would be a good scenario to happen. But uh, some people think it is. And so it is like a part of the, you know, Republicans have a major problem with losing college educated whites. College-educated whites view, sometimes wrongly, but sometimes rightfully, they view the Republican Party as low status, as idiotic and insane, and it's something that they don't want to be associated with. You, there's, there is a limit to how much you can cater, cater to that, but you do have to acknowledge that. And if you're just seeing guys wanting to turn a Senate chamber into a Jerry Springer episode over, some, over a tweet, over a fucking tweet... That's not the type of impression you want. You want your leaders to act respectful and responsible in certain settings. If they're at a football tailgate or if they're at a bar and they want to fight, different scenario. You know, I would still probably not acknowledge that due to, uh, you know, support, fully endorse that because of their status as leaders and old and middle-aged men. Is that they're maybe not supposed to do that when they're in that position. But if they do that in another scenario, it's not as bad. But in the middle of the Senate chamber, it's just a clown show. And... Everyone, but unfortunately, it appealed to everyone on our side who thought it was the greatest thing ever because there's unfortunately a lot of male insecurity on our side that dominates and people think that the only way to get back their divorce lawyer or the guy that their wife cheated on them is to challenge them to a duel. But we no longer live in that society. People do not have the same type of capacity for violence as they did in the 19th century of America. And it would just be ridiculous the type of duels we would have. I mean, there could there could even be a time where, you know, a, ca- a customer challenges a cashier to a duel for not bagging him correctly or just stuff. I mean, people are nuts and you don't, and it's not in a shared sense of community. So just strangers would be just killing each other and like, oh, I guess uh, this is ending shit talking, which it wouldn't. So, uh, yeah, Uh I mean, it is like, you know, some people like it's entertainment value, but... And also, I do like the idea of uh, beating up a union boss. So I would say Mark Wayne Mullen was probably in the right and challenging him, but are in the right in wanting to uh, attack the guy or to be criticized the guy. I would not side with the union boss here, but the union boss came off looking a lot better because he agreed to the challenge, but he didn't get out of his chair. He remained you know, dignified in his seat and just called the other guy a clown, which unfortunately Mark Wayne Mullen did, but the entire conservative entertainment complex thought this was the greatest thing ever when in fact it was not. If you really want to experience an honor culture, you can go to a Baltimore ghetto and you can experience the full, uh, the full wonders of it as people, you know, they stand up when you step on another shoe and they shoot each other. This is how life should be. If you really, and people complain, it's like, well, that's not how I would have it. It'd be much more dignified. It's like, well, sometimes it doesn't end up dignified because once people just have, the they feel that violence is the correct solution is approved by the community and it'll just lead to a lot of stupidity in that manner that's why you have to have a greater authority to mediate these disputes so it doesn't lead to violence and bloodshed 
and you're able to have a functioning society. Because a lot of times honor cultures um, aren't very functioning because there's long-standing blood feuds and clannishness and people can't get along. And if there's like some minor insult, they just start shooting each other. Not a, not a high-functioning society. So that is my that is my view on that. Very unpopular take, but I'm going to stick with it. Now moving along with more questions, and this one is from Augsburg. Augsburg, Augsburg asks, Hey Scott, do you think that right-wingers are more willing to overlook explicit left-wing talking points in media for the sake of enjoying art? The reason I ask is that I recently got an argument with my boomer cod dad about the movie Don't Look Up, which clearly addresses climate change from a liberal perspective. My dad, however, liked the movie and received to accept that, the, that this is what the film was really about and instead was able to read a universal Our Society Screwed theme into the film. That's really funny. His dad didn't understand that. But it, people are like that. I've gotten arguments with family members like that. It was just, it's just like, this isn't liberal at all. I have since found that many conservatives view said film the same way and tell their fellow right-wingers to just enjoy the film while convincing themselves that it makes fun of both sides. I think this also tracks with the Normie Khan propensity to religiously watch whatever iteration of Yellowstone is on the screen while ignoring or not even noticing the anti-white propaganda. Meanwhile, I can't imagine any left-winger putting up with even the most tepid right-wing message embedded in their favorite TV shows or movies. Are leftists just more uncompromising with their worldview than the mainstream right, or is it just that there is vastly more liberal media out there than even conservative? I would say to the questions... Do you think right-wingers are more willing to express? Yes, because they have to. There's most movies, music, TV shows are going to have a vaguely left-wing message to them. Sometimes you can find a conservative message in things that maybe they interpret as a left-wing thing. Um, like The Sopranos, you could say that there's like, a, you know, you can interpret it from a right-wing way or a left-wing way. With the popularity of Yellowstone is Yellowstone has a very appealing message to middle american whites and the aesthetics and tone and the thing it's like these are men are reclaiming their masculinity and stuff while at the same time they're like the indians were unjustly persecuted and white privilege and stuff and all that but at the same time they really enjoyed the aesthetics and tone and style of the show that really shows these middle-aged men or old men in kevin costner's case reclaiming their masculinity and showing up that these city slickers aren't welcome in their town. And so there's, you could find some right-wing themes and into it. I talked about this earlier is that, you know, there is a deference to authority in that show, which you don't really like Kevin Costner's character and others, which you're not going to find in other shows where it's always trying to undermine the authority and things and so conservatives are that warms their heart and seeing that that they'd much rather have that and it doesn't have as much uh, cultural degeneracy as that so they're willing to overlook the anti-white propaganda into it but it's the same with like anything else i mean it's just the fact that liberals or lefties are more willing to produce more of our art and culture than conservatives do and that's and people just have to tolerate that so that would say that there's just vastly more liberal media out there than conservative. That's 100% true. But it's also that lefties are more uncompromising with the role of view than the right wing. Leftists are more willing to cut off friends who are, say, a, race, a thing that they perceive as racist or that they voted for Trump than right wingers. Right wingers are more willing to tolerate and polls show this out all the time. Like when they ask people, it's like, would you cut off a family member or relative who voted for opposing candidate? Majority of Republicans say they wouldn't and well a much higher percentage of liberals say they would and 
I think that's also liberals feel more morally secure, or some of them do, a lot of them do, than right-wingers, and thus they feel that if you believe something differently from differently from you, that you are in fact evil and that they don't want you in your lives, while conservatives will just say, well, I don't want to have politics dictate this and all the things. And maybe this is a mentality they've adopted from just having to consume so much left-wing content over their lifetime that they're willing to overlook over things that they see around them. And so, yeah, I would say the answer to that is yes. I think it's it's both. It's that, you know, conservatives, that they were just going to say, I'm not going to tolerate any type of left-wing messaging in my show, they would be left with very few options for entertainment and, and culture. And so they have to make that tolerance. But at the same time, lefties are more much more willing to be uncompromising with what they're going to consume and what they're going to interact with than conservatives. And they feel that they can do this because, especially when it comes to culture and entertainment, because they have such an overwhelming dominance over culture and entertainment, that if there's a few uh, dis- dissonance among that, among that dominance, among that monopoly, they feel that they should crack down on it and, and oppose it. So there's a lot of leftists who, even though Yellowstone doesn't have a as right-wing a message as you might think, they view it as conservative-coded and they just don't want to watch it at all. So that is the nature of it. But, you know, sometimes you just have to ignore the message of the music and movies and TV shows you're watching and just enjoy it for entertainment and art's sake. So now moving on to Fake Cell Eradicator. He's got two questions this week. He said, one, we are truly witnessing general relation level performance in the current Twitter rage bait engagement farming Olympics. Who takes the gold medal in your view? Hanani or Hinkle? Also, who's more likely to be assassinated first? Hanani Lynch by Q-Tard, Sound of Freedom, Boomer Waffen, or Hinkle taken out by Mossad, Black Ops Strike Team? I don't know if Hanani is actually intentionally doing Twitter rage bait or engagement farming, as he is like an autist. And sometimes I, I find his stuff much more, uh, much funnier. Hinkle is a propagandist. I mean, some people may like his propaganda, but he is just like imagining a propaganda. He has like the emojis with like the sirens, like breaking, like uh, Israel sucks or something, and or breaking. Uh, I stand with. Uh, I stand with. I was about to say I stand with Israel, but yeah, Hinkle definitely doesn't. It's like I stand with Iran. And he's also making a lot more money off of Twitter than Hanani is. I mean, and most of Hinkle's people, they're, you know, positively sharing the content farming rather than Hanani, which is mostly people getting angry about what he's saying. Uh, but who is more likely to assassinate first? Um, probably Hinkle. <laughs> I don't think either one of them is at risk of it. But, you know, um, Hinkle, Hinkle is more likely to be arrested. I would say that. I'm not assassinated, but I think he's more likely to be arrested. I mean, there's, you know, the U.S. government may feel he's a foreign agent who hasn't properly registered or just something. Um, uh, but I don't. I don't. Uh, uh, the for, the great thing about Hanani is that conservatives are are relatively peaceful. They're not using any violence, and I don't think any of the people who are really mad about Hanani would ever take uh, violent action. Uh, but maybe there are some people with Hinkle that would do that. But I think the more um, greater threat for Hinkle is probably arrest. I don't know how likely that is, but uh, who knows what would go on with that. They definitely are paying attention to him because there's so many accounts complaining about Hinkle and him being a foreign agent and stuff. And, you know, if, if enough people complain, 
you know, certain intelligence agencies would notice. So that's something to say. Uh, so the second question, in regards to the recent U.S. Army retroactive pardoning of all those magicians that committed murder or mutiny, thus making their descendants eligible for benefits and back play claims, is this the skeleton key to implementing reparations without ever having to pass Congress? The same could be applied to any magician who had family in NYC 100 years ago when a highway or a trans, train tracks redlined them, and now they get compensated for the opportunity cost of missing out on owning a hypothetical $5 million historic Brooklyn brownstone. Actually, yes. No, this they've already been doing this. There was a case in L.A. or Southern California where they gave property black to some black family. They took it and they gave it to it as like a form of reparations. And the black family was like, so thankful for this. We really wanted this. And then they went and sold it at an insanely amount of high amount of, high amount of money to get the funds for that. And yes, this probably will be. There's going to be so many cases of it. They are going to be giving like this neighborhood was redlined and they're going to make amends through that. And they're going to find specific black people to give reparations to. And I don't think that there is... It's going to be very tough for them to give a general blanket reparations, but they will have specific targeted reparations for people who, as as you said, when a highway or train tracks redline them or, or push them out of their neighborhood, and they're going to give them money for that. Of course, they're never going to give reparations to all the white people who had to flee because of magic coming into their neighborhood and crime rising up, but they will do that for blacks. So yeah, I think that is going to be a way of implementing reparations. We're going to see a ton more examples of this. This really is something we're going to see throughout the 2020s and into the 2030s because reparations remains very politically unpopular. And also they realize that American government cannot afford this. Like California, like Newsom realized like, oh shit, we can definitely not afford reparations as called for because they're they're like, we want $15 trillion given to blacks. They're like, we can't afford this shit. So they, they obviously, uh, well, we'll give an apology letter. How about that? But targeted specific blacks who can say that they have a specific grievance that happened, you know, that their family member was lynched or something of the sort, they will be able to get money uh, from some official entity. So very good questions from Fake Cell Eradicator. There's all, all these questions are good, but just uh, I would wanted to highlight that. And the next question comes from Dollar Bill. This is a new guy. Uh, he has a he says an exciting and informative episode of High Strike. In the 1930s, in the lead up to World War II, the Roosevelt administration had a very strong pro-China and anti-Japan foreign policy. What explains this pro-China policy? At the time, China-U.S. ties were not particularly strong. I don't feel sympathy for a weaker nation being attacked by its stronger neighbor. Really explains it. A lot of it is actually evangelical connection. Uh, there was a ton of American evangelicals in China, while Japan limited. American missionaries up until after World War II. So there, and a lot of these people were deeply connected to the elites. Um, one good example of it is Henry Luce's family. Henry Luce founded Time Magazine. His family was very waspy, very connected to, you know, elite institutions in America. And his family was Christian missionaries and in China. And so a lot of these people had similar backgrounds and they had deep elite connections there. And they're like, look, the Chinese people are open to Christian Christianity. They're such wonderful people and you should favor them. And so a lot of it was these Christian missionaries had created a positive impression of China, especially 
uh, compared to Japan, which wasn't allowing any missionaries over. There was a you know a hostile society of foreigners and outsiders. And it just built up over time to have a very pro-China impression. And I think also that the Chinese leaders that were there were more interested in American investment and American involvement in their country than Japan. There's a couple of other reasons that I would have to give specific. But I, one thing that I can guarantee you is that the Christian missionary connection, which to repeat myself, had all these elite types who had gone to elite colleges, elite Ivy League universities, still maintained these ties uh, back in the home country, and were still very tight with these Christian groups and missionary groups in America and soliciting funds. And this was like a huge priority was uh, spreading the gospel to China. And these missionaries would come back and talk about how wonderful and awesome China is and how they're open to the gospel. And this was making for a more appealing message to the general public. One of the most influential writers and people in America at that time was Pearl Buck, whose family were Christian missionaries in China, and she herself became a missionary in China. And she wrote all these books about China, and that also further cemented the positive impression. So that's a cultural reason. There's probably also some, I think Japan was not as, Japan was also very much anti-colonialist, anti-Western powers to a lot of these forces and you know there was some of that you know growing tensions between japan and america over time and china was just welcoming in this huge cultural force into its life and that cultural force is able to impact american or public opinion about that and so that's why that's uh, one of the reasons why america was pro-china in the 30s and 40s up until the communist takeover the next question comes from appalachian and he said he's got, so uh, he said, ask this. I should have asked this after the first Republican debate, but Vivek brought up, or Vivek brought up a good idea of using our military to secure the southern border. However, with the Middle East quagmire sucking military focus back into it with Israel-Gaza conflict and China ramping up its military operations, I theory we are spread too thin as it is. Is leaving the Middle East possible? We can't afford to take eyes off China and lose U.S. world dominance, but the border is out of control. What conflicts can we afford to let go? Um, no, we are, we are, we've been in the long process of leaving the Middle East. I mean, we left uh, Afghanistan. We've been trying to extract ourselves from Syria for a long time. It's been a policy ever since Obama to try to pull us out of the Middle East. And we are starting to do that. The Israel-Gaza conflict uh, messed that up because it potentially, it potentially brought us back into the Middle East, which is what the foreign policy blob does not want. A lot of the neocons and Zionists want us back in the Middle East. But the left-wing liberal one does not. So that is, uh, yes, it is very, we are in the process of leading the Middle East. We just have to ensure that Israel doesn't escalate the conflict to Lebanon and potentially pull us in. Uh, So that is uh, very much possible. Uh, So we can let it go. And we are in the process of letting it go. Taiwan, you know, even though I don't like some of the neocon signaling over it, um, it would be very bad. It would not be good for America, global power. I guess it has to depend whether you want American global power to continue to exist or if you want to undermine it. And some right-wingers want American global power to cease to exist. But I don't know if I think having Chinese global power would not solve any of our issues and it might even make a lot of these problems worse. So... Um, we're going to stick with Taiwan, but I think the way Taiwan is going to be taken over by the Chinese is probably through 
political intimidation and persuasion. I don't know if they'll ever have an invasion. I think there just could be someday the Taiwanese government uh, somehow becomes um, decides that America might not be the best uh, partner to defend them, and they just make a deal with China, and that's how Chinese come in there. But we would never get about Taiwan. I mean, there's universal political support for uh, standing with Taiwan, unlike there is with Ukraine and even with Israel conflict. So that's something we can't use. But we can definitely use the military to uh, at the border. I mean, the way the cartels are operating, we can obviously use the military to use this. But it, I mean, we really don't quite need to use the military. It's more just a soundbite. We really just need to build a wall increase border patrol and take the handcuffs off border patrol and ice to do their jobs that's really all we have to do the military thing is more just a pr stunt we have people there that can secure the border we just need to provide more funding and more support for them to do so and we have the ability to do that and if there's problems with the cartel we can use the targeted military operations against them it's very easy um now he's got a second question second napoleon keat or cringe both the movie in person the movie, I would like to see it myself. A lot of intense debate on it, so I will withhold opinion on it uh, until, or maybe until I, someone I know and trust sees it and they tell they tell me the opinion. Of it. If they tell me that it sucks. I probably won't see it, but I, I think I might try to see it. I may try to see it this week. So I will let you guys know. But him as a person, I think he's key. You know, he's a great military man who conquered most of Europe. Uh, did a lot of cool stuff. Great military hero. A lot to admire in him. Uh, he established order from the chaos that was uh, in, inaugurated by the Jacobins and the French Revolution. I don't really give a shit about the, like, oh, well, he was he didn't restore the Bourbons, blah, blah, blah. I don't really care about that stuff. I think he's still a cool guy. He's like a great military hero. Like It's like Hannibal, Caesar, all the, Alexander the Great. They're all going to be keyed in their own respective way i don't think i think it's unless they're really terrible like there's some not so good aspects about alexander you know he was a supporter of multiracialism multiculturalism in the context of his age he did want a general mixing of the world so you would have uh, some cringe aspects about him like that but napoleon really didn't have those uh, controversial aspects in the way that alexander the great did so he is just a great military man who did a lot of cool things and he established order out of chaos and he made, he really tamped down on the excesses of the French Revolution. So I would say he's keyed. I think it's a, it's a different time period though. So you can't really utilize the example of Napoleon for our day and age in our, in our country. But I would say admiring Napoleon is a key thing. And I am not going to uh, dispute that as it is the case with all great military men and for most part. So that's my answer to that. And now I think we have the final question. I, I hope this is the final. I, there may be some others. I've been very thorough to check these out to ensure that we had all the Connolly questions answered. But I'm pretty sure this is the last one. And this one is from, I'm going to call him John. He said that's the name he wanted, John. He wanted a full name, but I'm going to just, uh, just use the first name. 
So we'll just sit, call him John. And he said, my first Connolly question, and this is a big one, is why does everything turn left? Or why does society keep getting more and more liberal? The answers I've heard given from people on our side range from blaming Christianity or the decline of Christianity to the right not finding back hard enough, the Frankfurt School and institutions being captured, or technology itself demystifying and overturning traditional orders, etc. Either way, I feel like this topic isn't discussed nearly enough on the right, and I understand this is a massive topic that could easily take up an entire episode. One can, of course, debate when this problem actually started, defined the left, but would love to hear at least some of your initial thoughts. I probably should just do a whole episode on this, but I will give some initial thoughts on why does everything turn left or seemingly turn left. And I'll say this in the context of American society. I definitely need to ponder for a a more thorough question, but an initial thought I would have is that in American society, we're extremely egalitarian and individualistic. And whoever promises more hyper-individualism, more egalitarianism, generally appeals to a population, especially a younger population that has less concern for traditional norms and standards. And so whoever is saying, like, this is how we achieve equality and this is how we achieve individual self-fulfillment is how people get on board with this stuff. And generally what is perceived as achieving greater equality and greater individual self-worth is further left-wing extremism. And this is appealing stuff because... Like saying blacks are not equal and are not able to have individual self-fulfillment. That's why we need affirmative action. That's why we need racial quotas. That's why we need uh, a Black History Month. That's why we need uh, even more black holidays. That's why we need to make our whole history around blacks. That's something it appeals to those fundamental values in our society that lead to a lot of insanity. It's the same with gays, trans, all those issues. And I think that's... And so, and for a lot of Americans, there's so much prosperity that there's happening in the society that they'll just say, oh, well, whatever, I'll, I'll just not let that bother me. I'll just move along. And if it's, and they even will think that greater individualism and greater equality or greater fulfillment of individual self-worth and greater equality is a good thing. So that would be my one short answer to that unfortunately it is at the end of the episode so i do have that i this really is deserving of another episode i hope he he re-asked this question again and maybe i can do this as an iq supplement or maybe as an entire episode topic itself because it really is deserving of a long answer much more so than the like the the two minute answer i gave but it's a very good question it is definitely a big one it's definitely something that we try to address more over time but i think it is something i really have to point out that a lot of the reason why we turn so left is not because of some external force it's not because of the frankfurt school or any of this stuff it's a lot of these values that have been with us since the founding, and I don't view the founding as fundamentally left-wing or, or wrong, but I think in the way that history has developed and how these values have been interpreted and what other values have been discarded and understandings have been discarded is that they've become more preeminent and prominent and been used to further insidious ideas and trends, and that is something that we need to accept. And these Ideas, unfortunately, are very popular among our people, and it's a way that we have to counteract it to ensure that some semblance of order and decent living is restored rather than the chaos that is surrounding us, the chaotic and the uh, the uh, wokeness and, and to make sure that America doesn't go full Bud Light that we tamp down on this stuff. So that is my short answer for this, but 
definitely please ask that later on and maybe request it for an entire episode. And if there's not much news going on or something, I could have a whole episode on it. Or if there's just some debate going on on Twitter, I think uh, my noggin can be get jogging and we can uh, we can get a much longer and fuller answer to your question. But it's a great question. And there is a last one. I had this question from Mark. He gave this a while ago, and he was asking me about the Marvel movies. I think he was supposed to send the question again, but I did miss this earlier about the Marvels bombing, and he was asking for my thoughts on that. So I will address that issue, because I know he was uh, reminding him about it. And the Marvels bombing, it is uh, what the significance of this is. I do hope that this is turning for Marvel, that there is no more of this, you know, that there, there's no longer a greater tolerance for this type of stuff, that America is finally getting over cape shit. But I'm not quite sure. I mean, Fast and Furious movies are still doing well. A ton of other Marvel movies are doing well. But even there was, um, there was a, a couple of cape shit bombs this year too. The new Shazam movie, which is DC's answer to Deadpool, and or how the way it is. I don't know if it's quite because it's not as vulgar, but it's like a snarky, ironic character. I watched some of the first one at the gym. That's where I watch everything that I don't want to watch is at the gym. And I was like, this is terrible, um, obviously. But that also bombed. There's some other bombs. But I think it's more that Hollywood is having some issues having successful films. I mean, they did have Barbenheimer, which was successful this summer. You know, Barbie and Oppenheimer were both successful this um Five Nights at Freddy's movie was successful. I mean, not a huge blockbuster, but it was, you know, raking in a lot of money. Uh, the Mario movie was a huge success. So there are successes, but it's not coming more in a traditional way. And a lot of these woke cartoon movies are really bombing. And the new Mario movie, even though I criticize it for how much of a success it was, just because it's like there is something very Reddit about adults seeing going to see a Mario movie. If you're going to see it with you, like your your kids or your nieces and nephews you know that's understandable and i would imagine if like a parent if you're wanting to choose a movie it's probably a great choice to take kids there's no wokeness it's just mario and bowser and all the crew nothing nothing harmful there uh so that's probably a good unwoke alternative but so there are hollywood successes but I think there is that there's a limits to how much wokeness they can do and how terrible a movie it is. And it was overwhelmingly woke in its advertising. They were referencing black girl magic. And maybe the general public is turning away from this stuff. But we'd have to advance more trends to see. I mean, last year, the Black Panther movie was and the Avatar and Avatar were two blockbuster hits, and both of them were extremely anti-white. Uh, and so I don't think there's been a dramatic change in the public consciousness since 2022, but maybe there has been. But the Marvel's movie bombing is a good sign that some of these really woke, uh, almost really comically woke movies are not doing well. So those are just my initial thoughts on that. I generally have, I run out of brain power by the end of the episode, so I generally don't have as much time and energy to devote to some topics that we get to. But that both of the things that we addressed uh, whether there is kind of a woke backlash in movies, which I think there is some example of that, and why does everything turn liberal are topics that we will be focused on and discuss more into the future with highly respected. But that is it for today's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. We're going to have some great content later in this week. We are not going to have the IQ supplement posted on Thursday because Thursday is Thanksgiving 
and hopefully everyone has a happy Thanksgiving. But that will probably either be posted Wednesday or Friday, and we will have a column later this week as well. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected. <laughs>